Good to see all of you today. We're so glad that you're uh, in worship at Grace. The Boston Spa uh, police were asked to respond and check on the welfare of Stephen Jones on a Friday afternoon because he had been mysteriously absent from work. School officials said that his 12-year-old daughter, Emma, had also been absent from school. And so when the police came and began to walk around and look through the windows, they saw someone lying on the floor inside. Upon entering, they found that Stephen Jones, Jennifer Jones, and 12-year-old Emma had all died from gunshot wounds. Police said Jennifer and Emma were killed and that Stephen shot himself. Our own Jordan Brussel, the pastor of student ministries at our Saratoga campus, was asked to speak at this special candlelight vigil held this past Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. And Jordan was quoted in the Daily Gazette as saying, when you got to know Emma, and by the way, Emma had come and been a part of the student ministry fellowship at Saratoga and had been there a number of times with her best friend. When you got to know Emma, you saw the display of hope and joy in her life. She loved to laugh and be silly with her friends. She was gifted as an artist, loved playing the alto saxophone, and loved competing in tennis and swimming. She enjoyed life, and she wanted others to enjoy it too. And Jordan did an amazing job sharing a message of hope and the love of Jesus Christ in the midst of this crisis that has obviously rocked our community. And I urge you to continue to pray for all of those who've been so deeply impacted by this tragedy. You know, when you think about it, while Christmas is supposed to be a time of peace and goodwill toward all people, the truth is, in reality, it's actually a time of turmoil for many. Family squabbles, addictive behaviors, crimes, loneliness, general anxiety disorders all escalate around the Christmas season. Statistically, that is simply an undeniable fact. People need answers. Life hasn't turned out quite the way they wanted it to be, and there's disappointment, and there's pain. Where do people go to find hope when hopes have been crushed? Well, today's passage speaks powerfully to that question. It's as relevant as any passage from God's always relevant word. These two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus that first Easter Sunday had lost their hope. You see, Luke 24 tells us that they had hope. That means those hopes were gone. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be the Messiah who would redeem Israel, but their hopes had been crucified and buried in that tomb. And now they had nothing but confusion and despair and doubts about whether the future would have any meaning at all. I want you to see today three ways that the risen Lord Jesus Christ made, a, made himself known to them 
then. And what I also don't want you to miss is that these actions made all the difference for them, but Jesus comes to us the same way today. That's what I don't want you to miss. Because some of you have come to this place and you're on that road to Emmaus, honestly. Hope has been crushed somehow through circumstances, through broken relationships, through a dream that's been shattered. You're walking the road to Emmaus today, honestly. The bottom of your world has fallen out and you need to know, is there any hope? Listen, listen. God can give you hope right now. He wants to speak a word to your heart from his word. So if you have ears to hear, I would ask you to tune your heart to what God would say to you today. I'm going to begin here in chapter 24, verse 13. It reads, now that same day, now what day are we talking about? We're talking about Resurrection Sunday. You may think this is an unusual passage to preach at Christmas time, but the truth is, for 2,000 years, the church has always connected Christmas with Easter. The birth of Jesus with the death and resurrection of Jesus, they actually go together marvelously well. That same day, that first Sunday of the resurrection, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. In the back of your bulletin is a place to jot some ideas and notes and thoughts there. I urge you to do that if that's helpful for you in learning. But I first want you to see that Jesus often makes himself known to us in humble, unassuming ways that are easy to miss. Oh, how I wish we knew more about these two disciples. Some people just assume that they're two guys, two male disciples, perhaps friends, colleagues in ministry, in life, walking along. I lean toward the view, and don't get dogmatic about these. This is just a conviction it could or could not be true. We don't know their exact identity, both of them. But I lean toward the view that Cleopas, mentioned here, is the same person that John names in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 25, but with a slightly different spelling. In John's Gospel, it's Clopas. No E in there. I believe it's just a variation of spelling. Clopas, or Cleopas, was a blood brother of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. So in other words, Jesus would have been his nephew. He was Jesus' uncle, and he was married to a woman named Mary. Both Joseph and Cleopas, these brothers, both married women named Mary. Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary. I think that's who these two were. They were genuine followers of Jesus. They had been convinced that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And they were discussing all the things that had happened. Emmaus is a little village about seven miles west of Jerusalem. And so they're walking along, talking about it all. The crucifixion, the resurrection, what the women had witnessed that morning, and so on. 
And Jesus, and I think it was supernatural how he disguised himself from being recognized by them, he joined them as an ordinary traveler. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these, day, in these days? Now, this is one of numerous appearances of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. This is just one of numerous appearances that happened over a period of about 40 days. I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus... I think I would have been a bit more dramatic in my appearances, if you know what I mean, in light of all that had happened. For instance, I, I think that I would have appeared to the Sanhedrin who had condemned me, and I think I would have said, I'm back, how do you like me now? You know what I mean? I think if I were Jesus, I would have appeared to the Roman soldiers who scourged me and nailed me to a cross. And I would have said, hey, let me nail you to a cross now. I just want you to see how that feels. Because I'm God and you're toast. But God's ways, thankfully, are not our ways. Jesus came in humble, unassuming ways to reveal himself. And this Emmaus appearance is exactly that way. By the way, it's consistent with how he came into the world 33 years earlier. Would you agree? It was a way that no one would have expected. I mean, who would have ever thought in a million years that Jesus would reveal himself to humble shepherds? You would think it would be royalty, wouldn't you? People who are high up, people with authority and clout. But no, the angel said to you guys, you shepherds, is born this day in the city of David, a savior who's Christ the Lord. Those shepherds must have been shocked that they would be so privileged to get this news first. I mean, honestly, they were nobodies in that culture. And they had to be even more surprised that the baby was born in the little village of Bethlehem in a stable and that he was placed in a manger. Now, here's my point. Usually, when Jesus reveals himself to you today, when he comes to you and me today into our lives, he comes in very unassuming ways. Now, there are exceptions, right? Some of you could stand today and tell a dramatic testimony about how you met Jesus in a foxhole on some battlefield in a foreign country. Amen? Some of you could tell about how he revealed himself to you in a personal experience through a dramatic prayer or maybe in an emergency room at a hospital or through some great emotional crisis. Yes, 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 that sometimes happens, but... Usually, Jesus comes to us in ways we don't expect. In fact, it's so humble and unassuming, you may not even recognize the profundity of what is happening until it's over. I mean, that was certainly true of Jacob in the Old Testament. You remember his story? Jacob ran away from home. He bedded down in this God-forsaken place called Bethel. 
He was trying to run away from God and God's will, run away from what he perceived to be the danger on his life. And while he was sleeping, he had this vision, this amazing dream of a ladder to heaven, and angels were ascending and descending on the ladder. And when he awakened the next morning, he said, surely God was in this place. And I didn't even recognize it. Sometimes Jesus is doing a profound work, but we don't have a clue how important it is at the time. Boy, as I look back on my life, that's certainly been true of me. It was November 1984, and I was minding my own business, just sitting in a seminary classroom one day. It was my last year of seminary, and I was looking forward to graduating, but I didn't know precisely which direction my life was going. I knew I was called to ministry. I had a little plan or two, but I didn't really know. And that particular day in this class, just minding my own business, Dr. Lewis Drummond, my professor in the class, just threw these words out. He said, I've been contacted by the Billy Graham team, and they're looking for me to recommend a student, someone who could come and work full-time and travel with the team and just kind of travel around the world and learn what crusade evangelism is about. And by the way, you could work on a doctoral degree at the same time. They would actually help fund that and give you time to, to work on it. it. If anybody's interested, I would love to receive your resume. Just minding my own business. I had no idea what a huge course difference that was going to make in my life that day. But as I look back, I have to say, surely, surely God was in that classroom that day. Directing and guiding my life in humble, unassuming ways that would have been easy to miss. A few years later, I was teaching in a church, and of all places... Fulton, New York, teaching about 400 people in this class how to share your faith, what it means to grow in Christ, how you can make a difference, let your life be your ministry. I just said, hi, my name is Rex. What is your name? Oh, hi, I'm Debbie. Hey, Debbie, how are you? I had no idea how profound that moment was going to be and the difference it would make in my life. And so as I look back on that, I say, surely God was in that conversation. Surely God was in that church that night. Some years later, I was in a transition time, not knowing exactly what the next move should be. And four friends who'd gotten to know me and cared about my life took me out individually to lunch. And they didn't compare notes. They just all had this on their heart. And at the end of the lunch, they would say, hey, don't know where you're going, what you're going to do, Rex, but hey, just want you to know that if God would ever lead you to plant a church in the capital district, hey, just my wife and I would love to be a part of it. I look back on that and I say, surely God was in those conversations, but I didn't know it at the time. You see, the lesson Elijah, the prophet, learned in the Old Testament is so profound and needed for us today. Elijah learned that God usually doesn't speak with a booming voice in huge, dramatic ways. No, usually it's in a still, small voice. You have to be alert. You see, he wants us to come to him, not of force, 
but of our own free will. That's why the third stanza of O Little Town of Bethlehem reads, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given as God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. I said, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem that you're unaware of these things? Then Jesus asked a question, what things? I'm going to come back to that in just a moment and make a little application. What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. See, they're talking about events that just happened that very day, this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, I want to make one little sidebar of application here for leaders because at all of our campuses right now, I'm talking to an unusual number of leaders, women and men who have a huge sphere of influence. God has put you in some sort of role of influence and perhaps significant authority as you lead others. Listen, listen. Effective leaders, hear this today. Effective leaders don't download and dump everything they know on people as they're trying to teach them or lead them or guide them into discovery. Instead, they tend to ask good questions. Effective leaders are often people who know how to ask open-ended questions that invite response and then they carefully listen. Notice how Jesus asked here in verse 19, what things? Do you think Jesus knew the answer to that? Of course he did. But his technique was brilliant. He was a master of asking good questions to help guide people into learning and discovery. Good leaders follow that practice. But secondly here, I want you to see that Jesus makes himself known to us and builds our hope through explaining the scriptures. You see, after these two disciples had explained what kinds of things were happening, Jesus began to teach them from the Bible, the, what we call the Old Testament. It was just the Bible to them. It was just scripture. He began to teach them what had really been predicted about the coming of the Messiah. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Moses is the human author. And all the prophets, both major and minor prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures 
concerning himself. I've been in a lot of Bible studies in my life, but folks, that's the one I want to be in right there. Jesus himself opening the scriptures up and showing them how they testified to the Messiah, how he would come, what it would be about. I imagine that Jesus went back to Genesis chapter 3 and talked about how God, when he cursed Satan, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, referring to the Messiah coming, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And Jesus said, look, we've got to rethink the way we imagine the Messiah coming and what it's about. I feel confident that Jesus probably went to Isaiah as he talked to them. And he probably said, remember Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin? Hey, look at how that happened. You remember what Mary experience how the angel said that which is conceived in you is of the holy spirit and you see what isaiah prophesied over 700 years earlier came to pass in specific detail i could imagine he went to micah as micah testified hundreds of years before that messiah would be born in bethlehem and he probably said you remember where jesus was born nazareth no, no, Nazareth is where he grew up. You remember when Joseph and Mary had to take that trip, although she was nine months pregnant, because a census was being taken? So they go and register at their hometown, the city of David, where David had been born. And you remember how that Jesus was actually born while they were there? And so again, it came true just as the prophet had said. And remember how Isaiah said he would be despised and rejected of people? Not everybody was going to receive him. And I'm sure Jesus went that day to Psalm 22. Talked about how they will actually cast lots for my clothing. It describes the resurrection in specific detail hundreds of years before the Persians ever invented the Excuse me, it, it describes the crucifixion in detail hundreds of years before the Persians ever invented that horrible practice. And on and on he went. I know he had to go to Genesis 22. And he said, remember Abraham when he took his only son Isaac up on the mountain and God told him to sacrifice his only son? But then God stopped him. Why did he do that? Was it because of his love for Abraham? Was it because of Abraham's love for God? No. God knew that Abraham loved him. The whole thing was a prefiguring of the fact that God would give his one and only son to die for us, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And on and on and on Jesus went probably for at least two hours, if not three or four, as they walked along the road, he opened the scriptures. And verse 28 says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. What an unusual teaching it must have been. How gripping, how riveting. 
Have you ever listened to a sermon for a period of time and at the end you just go, no, preach longer? I doubt it. I, I seriously doubt it. If that happens, that's a pretty rare thing. But this couple, think about it, walked for a couple hours at least with Jesus, and they couldn't get enough. They said, this can't be over. you got to come and stay with us. We need to learn more from you. You know what I think? I think they were kept from recognizing Christ so that they would base their understanding of the resurrection squarely on the scriptures and not on experience. That is very significant. Your base of authority, friend, is not those cool experiences you've had, real as they may be. Your base, your locus of authority is the word of God. And I think that's why he was kept from recognizing them. Otherwise, they might have been too enamored just with their experience of seeing the resurrected Christ. Jesus said, look, you go make disciples and you teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. He will teach you by his word and his spirit. Your authority is the scripture, though, not your experience. But with that in mind, there's one other thing I want to stress today about this story, and that is that Jesus often makes himself known to us, watch this now, through special encouraging experiences. Now, please listen closely. Please don't be, let this confuse you. Experience is not the source of our authority. Scripture is. But Jesus sometimes makes himself better known to us and illuminates certain aspects of his reality to us through special encouraging experiences. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Now, many Bible scholars believe this was like an early communion experience, like a communion meal. It, it has some of those words, doesn't it? He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. So that may be accurate. I sort of doubt it. I mean, you've been walking for hours. You probably haven't had any food that day, maybe just a little snack on the way. The first thing you're going to want to do is eat. And so it was natural after that for them just to invite this stranger in to eat supper with them. What was it that made them recognize him? Was it through some gesture? Was it through a certain way of talking? Was it an intimacy with the Father that they knew only Jesus had? Was it that when he passed the bread, maybe the sleeve on his arm came up and they saw at the base of his hand those nail prints? Whatever it was, suddenly their eyes were opened. This is the risen Christ. A group of Sunday school kids were asked to describe Easter in one word. And one little girl wrote, Easter means surprise. That's the word, surprise. Surprise, Sanhedrin. 
Surprise, soldiers. Surprise, Pilate. Surprise, Satan. Surprise, disciples. Surprise, world. Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus is alive. Jesus is more powerful than death. Surprise. Those two surprised disciples must have had instant goosebumps. When they saw those nail-scarred hands, Jesus didn't have to say another word. He just revealed himself to them, and then suddenly he disappeared. And I love this next verse. They ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Wow. Their hearts were on fire. Resurrection fire. Has that ever happened to you? Blaise Pascal was a brilliant French mathematician and scientist. And on the night of November the 23rd, 1654, he wrote in his journal that evening about an experience, the most memorable one of his life spiritually. And he wrote, fire. Then this glowing word was followed with the scribble, joy, 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 tears of joy. And then after that in his journal, several inscriptions written almost like a signature, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I think that's what Cleopas and Mary were experiencing. Their hearts were on fire and they wanted to tell about it. Can I tell you what I wish I could see today in more Christians? Here's the thing. I, I usually see kind of one or the other. I usually see Christians who are deeply rooted in the Scripture but have no fire. Or I see Christians who are on fire. Whoa, they're excited. They've had some cool experiences, but they think their authority rests in their experience. They can't back it up with scripture. Oh, how we need both. Oh, how we need some disciples of Jesus who really know his word, but who also have fire in their hearts because they experience the risen Christ daily as he walks with them and talks with them and guides them into deeper truth from his word. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. You see, when your heart's on fire like this, you, you got to go tell it. You got you to gotta testify to it. And one of the reasons I know we don't have too much, quote, fire in our hearts is because we're a little too silent most of the time. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Oh, folks, I want to tell you, since Jesus arrived in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he's been in the business of changing lives. Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, the prophet Simeon, the prophetess Anna, and I want to tell you today, I'll guarantee you, 
that Jesus Christ will change your life to if you'll just cooperate with his grace and his sovereign work in you. I'm telling you, he can change you from being a condemned sinner destined to die separated from God to a sinner saved by grace being transformed into the image of Christ. He can transform you from someone who has zero hope about the future to someone who lives daily with Christ being your living hope. And you know that whatever comes your way, he's got this. He can change you from a person who has a pathetic, negative attitude, always down in the mouth, to someone who's confidently positive. You know why? Because you know that whatever the future holds, God is already there. Oh, how he wants to transform our lives. The theologian Paul Tillich once said that there are three primary needs of modern people that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can meet. One, there's a need for release from guilt. Two, the need for hope in death. And three, Tillich said, is the need for purpose in life. The gospel meets all three of those needs. His atoning death on the cross can cleanse us from all sin and remove all that guilt. Hope in death? Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. The resurrection promises to us life after death. Jesus said, the one who believes in me, though we were dead, yet shall he live. And you talk about purpose. When we come to him, we begin to understand the significance of the risen Christ and that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. So what can we take away today? I just want to mention a couple of things. One, I would say to you, whoever you are, no matter how deep your despair, please understand today in this Christmas season, there is still hope. That's what this passage testifies to. These disciples on the road to Emmaus were hopeless. They were dejected. And yet when they met the risen Christ, their despair turned into exuberant hope. Are you walking on that gloomy road to Emmaus? John Autry said, Emmaus is any place where you go trying hard not to care that the bottom is dropped out of your world. If that's you, I urge you to look into the face of the risen Christ today. I urge you to believe in miracles again. I dare you, I dare you to believe that he loves you, yes, you, just like you are, and that you can come to him today as his spirit draws you. So that's the first lesson. If you're on that Emmaus Road, no matter how deep your despair, Jesus Christ can still give you hope. And here's a second lesson as we close. No matter how disoriented your life, invite Jesus in. This couple was confused, but they invited Jesus into their home, and he began to straighten out their thinking. He changed them. And every once in a while, as I listen to people 
talk about where they are in life, I'll hear them say things like this, Pastor, one day I'm going to give my life to Jesus. One day I'm going to do it. But I've still got some relationships I need to straighten out. Yeah, one day I'm going to invite the Lord into my life, but I got some doubts I want to eliminate. I've got some habits I want to overcome. Then, then I'll do it. Then I'll invite the Lord in. That may sound noble. That's nothing but pride. Do you really think that you, on your own, can get your life straightened out? Really? Martin Luther, the great reformer, once had a dream that stuck with him the rest of his life. He dreamed that Jesus was walking down the road toward his house, and he was elated at the thought. But then he looked at his house, and it was in shambles. And he thought, I can't invite a royal visitor into a house that looks like this. And so in his dream, he said he's frantically trying to straighten his house up and get everything in order. And you know how dreams can be. And his heart was just pounding in this dream. But the more he worked to try to straighten it out, the more of a mess it became. And now Jesus was knocking on the door. And he became more panicked as he worked harder to try to straighten it all out. But finally, hopeless and in fear that Jesus might just stop knocking and go away. He said, I opened the door and I said, Lord, come on in. If you can come into a house that looks like this. When he turned, his house was in perfect order. Now listen, you cannot straighten your life out on your own. But come to Jesus as you are. Give him your life just as you are. He's an expert at turning despair into hope, at turning lives that are in disarray into incredible order. And he will do that for you this very day. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If that's you today, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you saying, you need to open the door of your life to Christ, I dare you to do that. I invite you. I urge you and implore you to do that right now. Don't let it pass. Right now, say, Jesus, come into my life. It's such a mess. It's in all kinds of disarray because of my sin. Lord, would you please come in? I can't straighten it out on my own. I turn it over to you. Please forgive me. Please come into my life and start changing me, Lord, from the inside. Father, for those who've prayed that prayer today, I ask for your staying power, that you would seal them, save them, keep them, adopt them into your family, change them from the inside out, and do it all, Lord, for your glory. You are the Savior and the Lord, and let them know assuredly today that you are not only the King of hope, but you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in Jesus' name. Amen.